Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion, and welcome to Unscripted. Today, we are observing Olympic truce always. If it depends on Russia, there will be no war. But of course, if we are provoked, if there is some unfriendly action towards Russia, we will not sit and uh, do nothing. We talk to Russia's deputy ambassador, Dmitry Polanski, about what Russia intends to do at the UN regarding Ukraine as president of the Security Council this month. We also look at what Russia's 2014 annexation of Crimea can tell us about what may unfold now. On this episode, we have with us three other guests, Kadri Leek, an expert on Russia at the European Council of Foreign Relations, Richard Gowen, UN expert at the International Crisis Group in New York, and Sven Jorgensen, Estonia's ambassador to the UN. This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. When Russia annexed Crimea, a peninsula in southern Ukraine in the winter of 2014, the Security Council met and worked on a resolution reaffirming Ukraine's territorial sovereignty. But then Russia used its veto to block the resolution and nothing came out of the council. Richard Gowen, now the top UN expert at the International Crisis Group, recalls that time clearly. The main lesson from 2014 is that the council cannot really do very much about the situation in Ukraine for the simple reason that Russia holds a veto and Russia is not going to permit the council to authorize any sort of serious actions against it. But Kadri Leek, a Russia expert at the European Council of Foreign Relations, thinks 2014 serves as a warning to Russian President Vladimir Putin. I think they know that sanctions will follow. Russia might have been surprised by Western sanctions in 2014. I know people in Moscow didn't expect European sanctions to be long-lived. They have been. They have been renewed every six months. So I would assume that Russia has no big illusions on that account. And even though, yes, they of course see that there are debates about sanctions, that countries have different interests. I'm not sure what what Moscow predicts how harsh the, the sanctions will eventually be. But I think the lesson of 2014 should inform them that things like Greece do not go unpunished. They might be trying to mitigate the effect by talking to Western business circles and hoping them to lobby for softer sanctions, no sanctions. We see that in the news, Putin meeting with Italian business people, I think Germany is in the queue. In Germany's case, last time, many people expected the response to be eventually driven by business community. What happened was exactly the opposite. Response was driven by political community that sharply condemned the annexation of Crimea. And business fell in line. Business went along with politics, not politics for business. But international sanctions would exclude UN sanctions because Russia has a veto on that as well. 
Here in New York, the Security Council held an open debate on Ukraine on January 31st. Tensions between Russia and the U.S. were high. Russia gave no explanation for its military buildup on the Ukraine border, and nothing really came of the session. There is little more the council can do besides hold an open session. Richard Gowan says that the only way real discussions or resolutions will happen is if the debate moves to another forum. At least, that's what happened in 2014. I think the other lesson that we would take away from 2014 is that if and when the Security Council gridlocks of Ukraine, the Ukrainians themselves, along with the US and other friends, will go to other UN forums to criticize Russia. And I think we would expect to see the Ukrainians calling for meetings of the UN General Assembly about any potential conflict and also meetings in the Human Rights Council where Russia, of course, doesn't have a veto and can't stop resolutions going through. The crisis has not yet become a conflict, but the U.S. and its European allies are deeply concerned about Russia building up what they say is over 100,000 military troops around Ukraine. But Russia has consistently denied that the country is amassing troops at the borders and insists that it has the right to be there within its own borders. Here's Russian Deputy Ambassador Dmitry Polanski. On our territory, there is nothing extraordinary there. That uh, even if we look at the maps that were published, uh, most of the troops are situated tens or even hundreds of kilometers from the border. They are not an operational capacity there. And this happened before. There is nothing extraordinary about this situation. And it has been created. The artificial fuss, the artificial uh, hype that was created is actually United States' invention and not ours. A major source of tension in the dispute is Ukraine's relationship with NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO has opened the door to Ukraine one day becoming a full member. In January, Russia made some demands on the West including that it promises not to allow Ukraine into NATO. But the U.S. has refused. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres himself said he does not think Russia will invade Ukraine. But he warned Moscow that if it did, it would be a clear breach of international law. We didn't have any discussions with Secretary General, and it would be logical to discuss something if something was happening. But nothing is happening. What's happening is a big hype in the heads of uh, Western politicians mostly. That's why it's not reflected by anything on the ground. And uh, what what should we discuss? I don't know, some phobias. This is very strange to involve Secretary General to discuss phobias. Maybe some psychiatrist is necessary here, but I don't know good political psychiatrist. And I don't think our Western colleagues will will go to see these people, though maybe it's necessary. Guterres is taking a different approach than his predecessor, Ban Ki-moon, took in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea. Here's Richard Gowan. I think there's an interesting contrast between what Antonio Guterres is doing now and what his predecessor, Ban Ki-moon, did in 2014. In 2014, Ban Ki-moon flew to Moscow to meet Vladimir Putin. And he sent his deputy, Jan Eliasson, to Kiev to help stand up some sort of UN presence in the country in response to the conflict. Ban Ki-moon really seemed to believe that 
he should play a prominent role in trying to de-escalate the crisis. Guterres, by contrast, has called for calm and maybe doing some behind-the-scenes diplomacy, but he's definitely not out there in public in the way that Van was. I think the reason for that is that Guterres has concluded from his involvement in other significant crises, such as the conflict in Libya, that he has little real chance of influencing the outcome of conflicts between P5 powers. And although he will try in the background, I don't think he's going to risk his political capital and indeed risk his second term by taking initiatives that could fundamentally alienate Washington or fundamentally alienate Moscow. Another thing that is different on the geopolitical states is China. In the last five years, China has become a much more assertive member of the Security Council, far more than it was when Russia annexed Crimea. And that could be a game changer this time around. So far, it is keeping a low profile on the matter. But a Russian invasion of Ukraine could steal the spotlight from the Beijing Olympic Games, which start on February 4th. This is an important moment for China's global image. So China may be advocating behind closed doors for Russia to stay out of Ukraine, at least during the Games. After all, countries are supposed to respect an Olympic truce during the Games. Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, is expected to attend the opening ceremony, as well as Secretary General Antonio Guterres. But many countries, including the U.S., are diplomatically boycotting the games because of China's human rights violation in the Xinjiang province against the Uyghur minority. But China is sticking with Russia. At least they did at the January 31st Security Council meeting on Ukraine. Neither China nor Russia could stop the session from happening, even though Russia tried to with a technical vote, but failed. China's ambassador, Zhang Jun, said what the council needs to push for on Ukraine is quiet diplomacy, not what he called microphone diplomacy. Well, for China, we are against a public meeting. Uh, this is really the right time calling for quiet diplomacy with more diplomatic efforts instead of microphone diplomacy or public confrontation. And that's uh, also the concern of many members of the council. We all hope that with our efforts um, we can avoid adding fuel to the tension. And what's uh, really needed, badly needed, is more diplomatic efforts. This didn't surprise Estonian Ambassador Sven Jorgensen. During his two-year term on the council in 2020-2021, he saw Russia and China working more and more closely together. It was expected from all the talks that were going on before a meeting, but also looking at the cooperation China and Russia were having during two years that we were in the council. It was expected. What is a little bit surprising in a sense is that, or even though, you know, it's not surprising because I know how these things are working in the council, but if you look at the priorities of China and the council, then the utmost priority for them always is the sovereignty of countries. 
And right now, the sovereignty of one UN member state is under threat. And so, therefore, one is the cooperation with Russia, but the other one is the core principle of China's behavior, where sovereignty overrides absolutely everything, including human rights and all other aspects of UN cooperation and UN charter. If Russia invades Ukraine again, it could complicate China's long-standing stance in the Council as a defender of sovereignty and territorial integrity. Kadri Leek thinks China will try to take a back seat as much as possible. The U.S. expressed hope that China would speak up about sovereignty at the January 31st meeting, but it didn't happen. China will not side with Russia, nor will it side with the West. Like in 2014, it has never recognized Russia's sovereignty over Crimea, and I don't think it wants to support Russia in any future military interventions in Ukraine. But of course, when it comes to worldview, it has more commonalities probably with Russia than with the West. And as Russia is fighting Western hegemony and world order based on Western values, then of course, I would imagine China approves of it. And in addition, of course, you know, speaking in, uh, in terms of realpolitik, Russia-US relationship being worsened is not so bad for China, because that would mean that the US cannot focus on China the way it wants. That also would mean that Moscow is forced to seek China's support on more things than would otherwise be the case. Richard Gowen also thinks that China will take a back seat on the conflict and predicts that other elected council members will follow suit. China, but also a number of other weighty council members like India, will really try and step back from this debate as much as possible. The general rule of Security Council diplomacy is that when Russia and the West get into a fight, pretty much all the non-Western countries prefer to stay out of the way. I think that the Chinese have already indicated that they want to see this situation simmer down. And if there is a conflict, I think that they will call on both sides to de-escalate and their position in the Security Council would be to call for a as rapid a de-escalation as possible. That said, the Chinese are not going to break their pretty close relations to the Russians at the UN by actually lining up with the Americans to back resolutions condemning Moscow. I think that they will try and find some sort of middle way between Moscow and Washington. In Ambassador Jorgensen's experience, when a fight erupts between the US and Russia, most elected members tend to try to lay low. It's kind of like when parents are fighting in the living room while the kids stay in their bedrooms. Well, very often they are trying not to get between the elephants fighting. We witnessed it also when we raised the issues of Crimea, we raised the issues of Belarus and, and, you know, the security concerns in our neighborhood. And then it was visible also that some of the further away smaller countries did not want to pick sides. 
even in situations like what do we see now with Ukraine, but also what happens in Belarus when the international law is so clear, the violation of charter that is happening already, you know, threat with force is going clearly and directly against UN charter already now. So it's not only aggression, but even threat for military force is against the charter. But these are kinds of situations where the self-reserving instinct or whatever it might be that pushes some of the countries not directly in the region, then they try to avoid taking sides very strongly. Expectations are low for the council when it comes to addressing a possible invasion. But Richard Gowen says the stakes remain high for the council's image. I think it is a serious test for the Security Council. Because what a full-scale war and the ensuing UN debates about the war would demonstrate is exactly how bad relations have become between the permanent members of the council. And there is a risk that you will see a debate over Ukraine bleeding over into council discussions of other issues. For example, the US and Russians have been trying to find compromises over humanitarian aid to Syria over the last year. And they've been working together on agreements about aid flows into Syria. I find it hard to envisage the US wanting to continue to make compromises with Russia over the Syrian situation if there is a sense that you just cannot trust Moscow at all after a outbreak of violence in, in Ukraine. We're not sure that's the case. If you go back to 2014, what is striking is actually the council continued most of its business pretty much as normal on the Middle East and on African files in parallel with some very fierce public arguments over Ukraine. It is possible that even if there is a serious war in Ukraine, The US, Russia and other council members will conclude that they still have a shared interest in making the UN work when it comes to dealing with other problems such as the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. And you might have a weird situation where US diplomats are attacking the Russians constantly over Ukraine, but then working with them more quietly and more constructively on other files. But I do think that will be politically difficult to sustain. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a talk show featuring leading global voices? Do you want to learn more about how international issues directly affect people locally? Global Connections Television presents the insights of global influencers at no cost to viewers and programmers. GCTV is independently produced and reaches more than 70 million potential viewers worldwide each week. The show covers everything from human rights to climate change, from peace and security to empowering women and girls. It features guests such as Dr. Jane Goodall, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The show also hosts expert voices from the private sector, academia, and labor and environmental movements. GCTV is available to public television media outlets, universities, and service clubs for distribution. To watch the show or find out more, 
click the link in our episode description. Now back to the show. The role of the president of the Security Council is mostly a procedural one. So even though Russia is at the end this month, it can't really block a meeting on Ukraine if a country requests one. But the Russians are known to be procedural connoisseurs in the council. So it may be a good thing that a meeting on Ukraine happened before their presidency. Russia says that if council members want to discuss Ukraine in February, they can do so on the 17th. Here's Deputy Ambassador Polanski. If the United States wants to speak out, the most uh, becoming topic is the implementation of the Minsk agreements, then they will have such an opportunity. During our presidency on the 17th of February, we organize special meeting, and they are very much welcome to say whatever they want. Russia has said repeatedly that the diplomatic focus should be on the Minsk agreements. The agreements are between Russia and Ukraine and mediated by France and Germany. The four countries talked in late January, but leaked things there are still significant barriers to implementing the agreements. Minsk 1 is largely irrelevant. It was replaced by Minsk 2. And Minsk II is a treaty agreement negotiated essentially at gunpoint in February 2015, when Ukrainian troops were surrounded around the Baltseva village in eastern Ukraine. And the essence of the agreements is wide-ranging sovereignty for Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts with some de facto veto rights over Ukraine's future political choices. So essentially injecting a Russian Trojan horse into Ukrainian political system. Russia and Ukraine also have slightly different interpretations of how the agreements should be implemented. But agreements have been stuck ever since they were signed, not just because of the disagreements, but also because neither side trusts the other. and. Apparently, there is no mediator who would be universally trusted by both, even though Germany and France were there when agreement was signed and they could fulfill that role. Probably our international clout is not sufficient to assure the Ukrainians that if they pass the political changes constitutional changes that they had promised to do in the treaty, but then Russia would actually really withdraw its troops. And and likewise, they cannot give Russia any promises about Ukraine delivering on the political side. So it has been stuck ever since. As Leek says, the troops amassed at the Ukrainian border may be an impasse to making progress on the Minsk agreements. Still, for Richard Gowan, revisiting Minsk could be the best-case scenario for lowering tensions. One idea that has been floating around for years is that the UN could play a more significant role in the implementation of the Minsk agreements, possibly even by sending peacekeepers or at least UN observers to oversee a cessation of hostilities in Donbass. So there is just a scenario in which Moscow steps back and the P5 actually try and use UN conflict resolution mechanisms to sort out the problem in eastern Ukraine. This is something to watch for at the meeting on Ukraine on the 17th. 
Undersecretary General for Political Affairs Rosemary DiCarlo and a UN representative in Ukraine will brief the consul. There will be no high-level Russian officials traveling to New York this month. Russia's ambassador Vasily Nabenzia said they're too busy to come. Russia is, of course, organizing a few signature events. One is on the effect of international sanctions. This is a recurring priority for Russia, especially now that more sanctions are looming over the country's head from Europe and the U.S. Here's Deputy Ambassador Polanski. This is a cross-cutting topic. Uh, we really want to see how UN and other sanctions, but mostly UN sanctions, affect countries, uh, their political situation, economic situation, because sanctions is a very specific tool and it should be also used uh, very cautiously and carefully. It shouldn't harm the countries unintendedly. Unfortunately, in, in many situations we see in Russia that the sanctions are aggravating the situation of the population and not hitting the targets that uh, were behind these sanctions initially. It's not that we are against the sanctions, but we think that we should be very, very prudent and cautious while using this instrument. The sanctions debate will take place on the 7th. Another event will be on cooperation between the UN and other multilateral organizations. This time around, it's the Collective Security Treaty Organization, or CSTO. This is the Russian version of NATO. Secretary General Guterres is expected to brief the council at that meeting. We did something similar last time when we had presidency, but it was about three regional organizations, CSTO, CIS, and Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Now, given the recent events, we decided to narrow it down to CSTO and to invite everybody to give assessment of how this cooperation is developing and what can be done to intensify it. The focus of this meeting will be on Kazakhstan, where protests in early January led the CSTO to send peacekeepers in response to street protests against the Kazakh government. More than 200 people were killed and thousands were arrested. Russia has not planned any meeting for the first week of February to celebrate the Chinese New Year and the beginning of the Beijing Olympic Games, which start on the 4th. Before leaving for Beijing, Guterres made another appeal for the world to observe the Olympic truce. He was focused on Ethiopia, but perhaps the message will also reach Moscow, Kiev, and Washington. That's it for our show. This episode was co-produced by me, Casey Candela, and Stephanie Filion for Past Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leimbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted, and Past Blue is covering the important news from women's rights to human rights to peacekeeping. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Passblue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Passblue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends. 